um, the reason that I decided to deviate from the norm, which is, as many of you would know if you've been here before, the curated program that I do does usually involve me inviting writers to come and riff in some lateral way off whatever the exhibition is here. But once I saw this exhibition, I knew there was only one person that I wanted to talk to in the whole country. I didn't know whether I could get him, because Paul is very rarely in Sydney, because most of his work um, takes place elsewhere, as we're going to hear in a moment. And um, Paul has been a hero of mine and someone that I've admired for many years. He's, he's someone who I think operates, maybe by choice, somewhat under the radar in Australia, but is a very, very significant player in terms of social justice and health in indigenous communities. And so I am really, really thrilled to have you here tonight, Paul, I have to say. Thank you. So welcome. Now, you have come straight off a plane from the Northern Territory. Before you talk about that, I would just love to get your response to the show and what you, what you think of what's in that space. Hmm. I'll put on my art critic hat. No, no, no. I think it's got um, it's got some of the things that I think are most important in any work. Um, it, it's made of simple materials, most of which are recycled, so it probably does little damage to what exists. I mean, that's important in everything we do. Um, it's incremental, and I particularly like that. I think it's not one grand vision of an object. It's, it's multiple visions by many people, and that's obvious. I mean, it's obvious in the form of it. Many people are asked to contribute. Um, and I also like the name, Inhabit. Mm. I mean, I actually like the notion of Inhabit. It also takes words and makes us re-look at them, which I think we, in English, um, we have so many words, unlike other languages, I think we often lose where they come from. Mm. And sometimes that's important because it gets us back in. And a lot of I mean, a lot of the architecture I do is linked to communities or to people, or all my architecture is linked to people. And it starts with the place they live and the people. And this exhibition is thoroughly about mm. the place. It's about the people who, in some ways, are forced to dwell there or are marginally dwelling there. And then it puts the two together. Mm. And it lets us have a chance, I think, at <coughs> almost recreating in the way people must in terms of incrementally making the places they live. So I think, yeah, that's a it's a brief synopsis. Mm, and it has a wonderful organic quality and a very particular aesthetic that I want to come back to when we when we found out a little bit more about you. Because what I'd like to do first, before we get on to the sort of philosophy of what you do and how you do it, is, is get to know you a little better in terms of the fact that you, um, I think, identify very much with the idea of otherness as a migrant someone who's come from somewhere else, whose family came from somewhere else. Can you talk a little bit about your background and about the point at which you decided, as a practicing architect, that you wanted to prioritize a particular kind of work? Sure. Um, I mean, the, my, my dad was Greek, my mother was an Aussie, and I lived in the classic, um, which I think to many Australians is not unfamiliar, a mixed, a mixed family, you know, and I think when you grow up in that, you are absolutely sure it's the only type of family that exists. It's only later you realise that, in fact, it's not the only type of family that exists. And whilst I don't pretend to be Greek, and I certainly um, I make no, I never have, I think what it does introduce you to at a really young age, when you probably learn the most critical bits, is the otherness, exactly what you're saying. Mm. And, and it starts really simply, not everyone speaks the same language, not everyone eats the same food, not everyone conducts their day-to-day -day business in exactly the same way. And I think you get, as a kid, that just instills in you that that in itself is not a threat. 
It's not something unusual. It, in fact, it's probably the norm. And I think that's that little tiny piece sticks with you. Um, in terms of otherness, you know, later on, and in terms of work, it's. In fact, I try not to be seen. I mean, I've said many, many times. I think that if I'm working, I've just come back from Aboriginal communities in Central Australia um, or Nepal, and I also to to earn a living and to do that work, I work as an architect for hopefully many wealthy people, um, <laughs> enough wealthy people to subsidise my life. And I've never ever hidden that. I think it's important, but also the key bit is I like doing it. I don't do it as a chore. Uh, that was what I was trained to be, an architect. Um, and I also think it's really important because I try and give the same service to the person in the eastern suburbs, two streets from here, or the person in a camp, um, you know, in the town camps of Alice Springs. And I think that's, the minute you change that, the, the goalpost, I think there's something goes very askew. And I've tried really hard to deliver the same service. Now, I'm not saying it's the same product, but the same service, mm -hmm. the same amount of effort, time, communication, all the things you have to do to get a good building in Sydney for a middle class, you know, Australian or whatever. I think you have to have the same effort. Um, and I see that in many, work, a lot of work I see, in fact, people change the rules. They mm -hmm. say, because we're now dealing with Aboriginal people, we'll, we'll get a, a whole new set of rules. And I'm not quite sure why, so. But I just want to, to go, um back to that point of making the decision to, to do, um, to, to manage something maybe more holistic then and think, okay, I will have the eastern suburbs, to, to all intents and purposes, clientele, and they will offset or subsidise this other work. Many um, architects might have an ideal, an idealistic vision of going to do what you did, but making that first step, taking that first step must have required a certain degree of courage into fairly uncharted territory. Can you just go back in time a little bit and, and think back to when you went into your first Aboriginal sure. community and how you did that? Sure. Two, two key points. and they're, they're, It's rare in your life you know there are two key points. One was as a student. Uh, we finished three years in architecture. In our fourth year, we were meant to work in an office. And those of you who are architects may have done all of this. Um, a couple of mates in architecture said that's the last thing we want to do. Um, how do we get out of it? So we decided to buy a double-decker bus um, and we did a show on the environment for school kids. That was the, that was the scam. Um, and took the bus around Australia. It took a year to take it right around the edge of Australia at 35 miles an hour top speed in those days. And we did do shows for kids. And, of course, once you leave the cities and the East Coast, um, a lot of the kids that were in the classes were Aboriginal kids. Um, and by just straight collision, not through having an activist head or you know having any idealistic vision at all, you just bump into these kids and then their parents. And I guess as a you know what was a 19, 20 year old, it it shocked the pants off me. It was an Australia I had never conceived of. We were never taught about it. I knew nothing about that world at all. So that was that was one. I came back, finished architecture, again with not any great political passion or zeal, if I'm honest. Um, the second big, and I think, you say, women always lead, men always follow. <laughs> women are the champions, and my wife is here tonight. Um, was, 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 Lots of nodding from yes. the audience. <laughs> 
the Sandra's always led, led in terms of, I think, you know, almost the big ideas. And, and Sandra got a job uh, way back working in Redfern at the medical, Aboriginal Medical Service. And from that, was asked would she go and set up the first um, dental service in Central Australia, in the area I've been, just come back from. She went out there at exactly the same time, and she was out there for two months establishing a full dental service. And she was there at exactly the same time that I'd decided brilliantly to start my own practice. And I had literally $2 in the bank. I mean, <laughs> not $2.50, $2. She was in a very small house in Central Australia, um, which had become the clinic for this now Aboriginal-controlled medical service. She had in the, the chair, as a patient, the chairman, who said, we've been waiting for two years for the bloody South Australian government to help us make a, a slightly better health clinic. And they just won't come. So she, I think, jokingly said, oh, my husband's an architect. <laughs> and he said, right, OK. So on a radio, in those days, a radio phone, um, rad phones, which were very difficult and temperamental, there's a guy who spoke Pitanjara and a few words of English, and I had zero Pitanjara and only marginal English, I think, at times, <laughs> trying to get on a rad phone a discussion about if you come out here and do a design, we won't pay you, but we'll give you the airfare and get you out here. And, and I did a deal, and because Sandra's gone for two months, it seemed like a great idea to get a free trip out, do some work, um, see that country, and then you know, see what happened. And I guess that was the very first contact. And I took it on again, I think, as a job, not as a, not as a change the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a, and, you know, people want to put that onto what you do, but mm -hmm. it wasn't. It was a job. These were clients. And they were incredibly good clients. I've got to say, they were fantastic clients. And we did the design, which was rough as guts and probably very bad in hindsight, because I knew nothing. I was an ignorant. But we did something. It was built, and lots of the community helped build it. We, we built it. And then, of course, the mob up the road said, you've done one for them. You can come and do one for us. You know. And of course, from that, almost the pattern gets started. And I think once you start, I've often said all you really need in many parts of Australia is respiration to get the job. If you're breathing, you're good enough. You know? <laughs> and I don't, I don't pretend it was any skill that started the work. And um, But I think that's, you, you start. And I think like many things, uh, I asked Lloyd Reese once how he'd become such an extraordinary painter. He was one of my, my very few heroes in life. And he was about 90, and he just looked at me oddly, and he said, uh, it's like walking. And I said, sorry? He said, you take one step. I said, right. Then he said, you take another. I said, yes. He said, after a while, you're walking. <laughs> and it took me 20 years to, I think, understand what he'd said, but I think, I think it's right. Okay, so you you have now made uh, uh, an extraordinary contribution. You're too modest to say so, really yourself, but an extraordinary contribution to this area of um, kind of social justice and the interaction between design and architecture and health. And because we hear so many bad news stories that come out of Aboriginal communities, and there was a shocking story I think last night, just on 7:30, about Tumala and the state of Tumala at the moment. Um, I'd like you to tell us a couple of the good news stories that I find so inspiring about your practice, particularly in relation to um, the way that you've been able to observe behaviour in Aboriginal communities and design to, to remedy certain environmental factors to do with um, eyesight, scarring of retina. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Look, I, I want to pick up on the first bit, though, because it's not, it's not modesty. 
It, it's critical to the work, and that I, you know, I work with a team of often over a thousand people in Australia alone. Now, to deny that or to pretend it's me, I'm sitting here, but there could be another five, at least 500 people who could do this about that work, and to to deny that doesn't do the work justice. And I, I'm very passionate about that. But I'm going to come to the team in a minute. Okay. But, 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 but it's the team collectively that fires up, gives direction, is the grunt on the ground, and without that, all the ideas on Earth just simply wouldn't happen. And I, I think that's critical. Um, if you take the trachoma um, program, which I think is um, you know, it's a while back, but it, but it's a great example. It, to me, it's a it's a key example of how you can get things working together. And I've got three minutes for the story. But, um, <coughs> You've got uh, as much time as you tr need. Trachoma is, is um, you know, it's a, it's a bug. It gets in your eye and it, and it starts off being annoying and it makes you blind. There's only one country in the world in the last 30 years where trachoma has increased. And you can guess where that is. Australia. It's a simple to treat, easy thing to get rid of. It's a bug you can actually get rid of. But uh, we haven't. Fred, Fred Hollows, a legendary character, you know, obviously put a lot of effort into doing exactly that, driving around Australia with a team, fixing it. We got a chance in Central Australia to try and eradicate trachoma in a, in a region, but mainly by changing the physical environment as well as having eye doctors look at treating the trachoma. But you can't, it's hard just to treat the trachoma and not change the environment because it's the environment that gives people the bug. So. I know absolutely nothing about the medicals of this, but our medical doctor on our team says these are the issues. We then got the head of um, uh, Melbourne University eye doctor, and they set the framework. My job ended up being a sim simple things like eradicating the number of flies in the area, <laughs> not with a can of mortine, and um, reducing dust. They were two of the factors, and making sure kids could wash once a day. So um, these things sound incredibly basic but are incredibly important. So we ended up, this project, the washing kids, we'd done a lot of work on and we were able to get all showers working and face washing for kids at school and that went well. How do you reduce flies? Well, you get on to what we found was the doctor of flies and that was his nickname through the project. And he's a forensic entomologist from University of Western Australia who spends his life looking at bugs and how you can tell how people die due to bugs. Um, He's a, he's a strange character, to say the least. <laughs> and when I introduced him to a group about this size of Aboriginal people in the community that had said, we want to do this work, absolutely, we know who you are, we want to work on this. So a group about this big of Aboriginal people, and I got up to introduce this bloke and said in my faltering Pindara that this was the introducing the doctor of flies. And they all <laughs> fell about laughing and said, oh, you know what you just said? You said he's the doctor of flies, you know? And I said, yeah, that's what he is. <laughs> and and they, the, basically they said in words not unlike, you know, you white fellas really ought to get a life. You know? <laughs> How could he spend his life studying flies? But he, he did. Um, he got in and then the second guy I had to introduce was the doctor of dust and exactly the same <laughs> laughing occurred. He is, we got a loan from Rio Tinto, the mining company, and his job was to reduce dust and to make sure we actually had reduced it by monitoring it. Again, all very possible. And not to go on forever, the, the doctor of flies, and this is what I really like, these two guys had never worked 
specifically in Indigenous communities before. They were both extremely professional. They got up and said, this is what we're going to have to do. This is what we're going to do. And the Doctor of Flies said, we're going to get the school kids involved. We're going to trap flies every two weeks, putting these fly traps which he'd designed out around the community. The kids are going to get the flies, they're going to put them in a bottle, anaesthetise them, send them to me in Perth. I'll open their stomachs, check the guts of their stomach. If there's the trachoma bug, I will send up by return post a big vat of dung beetles, which the kids will release at every one of these points. And they'll go out and scavenge animal dung and eat the dung on which the flies breed. And of 28 species of flies in Central Australia, only one carries the trachoma bug, and it vomits on everything. This is a great discussion before dinner. <laughs> See how much you learn? Um, and sure enough, we, you know, we monitored when the flies breed through weather, weather patterns. The kids did the monitoring. They did release the dung beetles. The fly population dropped. The Doctor of Dust worked out many, about eight different ways to reduce dust, and that was achieved. The washing continued, and we dropped trachoma from in the mid-80s, it was over 96% of kids had active trachoma. By when we started this project, just by washing it, it was down to about 50% and we got it down to below 20%. And once it gets below 20%, there's a very good chance that the flies in that region stop. They only have a limited flight range, so there's a good chance you can actually make a dent on it for a long period of time, which is in fact has been the case. That's a good news story. I don't think you get much better news story than that. Um, Christian Blind Mission, um, a, a, an aid agency, took the methodology to Central Africa where the methodology has been repeated and the same methodology in terms of how do you reduce trachoma has been with great success. The Australian government ignored the entire project and trachoma continues to increase. And whilst I'm happy to tell ministers or anyone else good news stories, mm. You can't tell fairy stories, no. and I refuse to do okay. that. But there are very good news stories. And I've got to say that most of our workers, like on all our projects in that project, were Aboriginal people. People helping themselves through direction, learning how to do things, and then doing them incredibly well. Why? Because it's their kids who suffer. Mm. So it's no reason, you know, why wouldn't people help their own kids? Universal. OK, well, let's go, let's go to the... Um to the myths, let's go right to the heart of the way we here often are led to perceive and understand things that are very remote from us and that are only brought to us by the media, often in very sensational ways. And I guess the most prevalent myth that we have about Aboriginal housing um, is that um, once we provide housing, which is obviously in dire shortage in remote communities, it is almost automatically damaged and destroyed by those communities. Could you address that particular myth? Sure. I mean, our work involves detailed checking of houses, we, we're, and the main part of the work is simply fixing existing houses, not designing new ones, not building new ones, just simply fixing existing houses. Very unglamorous, undramatic, dirty, grinding, day-to-day -day work, not sexy at all. Um, but while, when we do fix things in houses, we record why we had to fix them. Because clearly, if people are taking a sledgehammer and going through a house and breaking things, well, us fixing it is not really that much use without doing something about the person with a sledgehammer, obviously. So we, we might be crazy, but we're not that crazy. So everything we fix, we catalogue why. In the last 10 years, or it'll have changed today, because there's projects happening as I speak, there's about 190,000 jobs that we've fixed in houses around Australia. Uh, of those 190,000 jobs, less than 9% are 
currently are to do with any sort of abuse, misuse, overuse, damage, vandalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, the other two categories, poor construction has risen in the last five years dramatically. It's now up to 21% of houses that we fix. The house is simply built upside down or back to front, like a light switch and a light but no cable in the wall. A, a toilet bowl on the floor but no drain attached. A tap in the shower but no water pipe attached. Why? Why is that happening? Because people can get away with it. It's that simple. I don't think there's any great mystery. It's Sometimes it's an honest mistake. That's fair and that happens on any building job. Things just go wrong. Builder makes a mistake. We all make mistakes. That's fair. Most of these aren't. Most of these are calculated ways to get the job done cheaper and get out quick. Oh, it's that simple. And the last category, the biggest one, is routine maintenance, which simply isn't done. Routine day-to-day -day maintenance, which doesn't get done for whatever reason. So uh, part of the reason we use Aboriginal people to do this work is then we leave them behind to start to learn how to do some of that day-to-day -day maintenance. And they have their own tools so that they can keep the tools and work when they need to on maintenance as it arises. Can you talk, Paul, about the environmental factors out there that make maintenance so much of an issue in terms of things like the minerals in the water? Sure. I mean, in, in you know, Australia is a huge place and it's always dangerous to generalise overall and we do work in urban, suburban, rural and remote areas but if you leave the coast of Australia generally, not someone who knows the country will pick me up on this, but if you leave the coastal belt, it's an old country, most of the water is mineralised, you pull that water out of the ground or grab it in some way unless you're getting rainwater which is usually in most of Australia not enough to keep you going all the year, some of the year. Um, then the minerals play havoc with taps and all the bits of a house that they touch, the kettle, the jug, the medical equipment, um, the, the hot water system, um, everything in the house gets damaged dramatically by mineral salt. Um, so that does more damage than probably anything else that we've ever tracked in, in the work we do. Um, there's dust, there's extremes of heat, heat and cold. Um, ants. Let's go back ants. You know, we, we I think have a trillion, a trillion varieties of ants in this country and uh, they seem to do all sorts of damage. I mean white ants everyone knows about but in parts of northern Australia they seem to be able to eat through concrete and I think they'll soon have a, an appetite for steel but they certainly will eat anything that looks like um, timber. That's one. Tiny ants called Singapore ants that on a wall will look like a water stain. They're so fine. They love the innards of electrical switches. Um, anything electrical they'll get into and cause, because they've got formic acid on their bodies, they either cause a short circuit or they cause decay. Um, and there's all the ants in between, seems to me. So, <laughs> so if you, for example, if you've got a standard stove, um, if you, all of you take your stoves to northern Australia or central Australia, I reckon you'll get about a tenth the life out of them. Now, they can be a melee, they can have all the best German name <laughs> up front, you'll still only get about a tenth because you'll have all these things that you're not nothing like in Sydney will start getting in. I know many of you have cockroaches, but you won't admit it. <laughs> but, but tenfold that uh, and all the different bugs that will get in. So we've tried to go to stove manufacturers and say to them, the stoves you build for Europe, um, Western market, are simply not good enough. So these are all the things you have to prevent. 
to, in the control mechanisms and all the bits, and they can do it. That's the thing. You can actually solve the problem, and you can make a better product. We're not interested in stoves. We're interested in the family who's got to cook on the stove. That's the issue. It always comes back to the people involved, not, not so much the things. Architects, I think, are obsessed by things. That's the problem. We've got to get beyond the thing and actually get into what is the thing there for. Like, I'm not that interested in housing, per se, for Indigenous people or for my clients in Sydney. It, it's a thing. Maybe it's beautiful, maybe it isn't. Yeah, we can work on that. But if it works brilliantly for, for 30 years for a family, it is beautiful. By definition, it's got to be beautiful. And that's that's where I think we need to put the effort. So it's a long way around. So, so let's talk about materials that are more suitable for that environment. I know um, that, in fact, when you were talking a couple of years ago on By Design with the late Alan Saunders, he asked you a question about materials, and I think you talked a little bit about bamboo. Um, mm. Can you just talk about whether there are materials that we have available to us that we're not using as intelligently as we could? It's, I know there are a few architects here, and I've got a complete flogging from them. Look, I, I think, um, I, I just think there's no such thing as a bad material. I think to start with the materials is almost the, the wrong end. Uh, and I'll give you an example, like for, for a wealthy Chinese client, in we work in the practice side worked in China. The site we worked on had natural, naturally occurring bamboo, probably been there for tens of thousands of years. That material, we had the luxury of having one of the, the world's best bamboo engineers who said this is good bamboo, we tested it, we can use this structurally, and we did. We made you know, a 30 metre span entrance bridge in bamboo. Mm. We built roofs with impossible cantilevers out of bamboo. Um, in the hands of someone who knew that material, it was magnificent. And by the time the job was finished, the bamboo where we'd cut it had grown to exactly the same height as when we started. You can eat the stuff, you can eat the tips of it, you can make paper, high quality paper out of it. It's one of the most amazing materials. In China, in the village nearby, which had 4,000 year old houses, an amazing village, great technology. They had never used bamboo for anything other than temporary fencing to keep animals in, and then it rotted within about, you know, six months because the weather gets onto it and it rots, and it goes into the ground, and they cut another bit, and they do it again. And that's how bamboo had been used. So when we suggested to our middle-class Chinese client we were using bamboo, they put their head in their hands and said, this is a disaster. We, we engaged you from the West specifically to give us steel and glass. And what do we get? We get village rubbish. And that's precisely what they thought, you know? So their opinion of what was good material and a bad material, we used earth from the local village, a technology that was been there forever, stone. We had the people, not just the material, but the people to use it brilliantly. The best tile on earth, I've never used a tile, I don't think, in Australia, but the best tile on earth is made in a village down the road. So when you come back to here, what's a good material in Central Australia? Um, a good material is one that does all the jobs you want it to do. So, you know, we build out of things like steel because we can put it on a, build it in a factory, put it on a truck and take it out at a third the cost. Um, steel doesn't rust in the desert. But I'm thinking, for example, of the fact that you, you have said that plastic, for example, presents a lot of problems because native rats like plastic. Oh, sure. Sure. So plastic obviously is not a material that you want to use. Well, sure. when we get to the detail then, there's all sorts of decisions that I think would bore most people about the, the specifics of each bit though, and you do have to get to that level of detail, and I think that's a part of our job. And, but it always comes back to 
the pipe you're putting in the wall is, is more about, you know, is it going to be there in 20 years to wash the kid? And if it is, then what are we going to have to use? Now, if we use copper, the rats won't eat it, but the, the low pH or high pH or low pH water will uh, strip it in three months. Um, if we use galvanised, the, the salts will eat it in one month. Um, so which one do we pick? So do we stop the rats and use the plastic, or do we use the other and, and change the water? You know, I mean... And this is why I guess a lot of this is not a one-liner. A lot of this work, people want you to have a one-liner. Mm. You know, I don't know how many reporters when they want to do their quick. And one reason to stay under the radar is a lot of these issues simply don't have one-liners. Mm. Not when you get to the detail of it. There might be a one-liner about, uh, I think all Indigenous people in this country should have good housing. I think they should have, you know, their family should be able to live in a reasonable way. I think that's beyond dispute. And why isn't that happening? Well, we should do something about that. But when it gets to the detail, then I think it's not quite so simple. Well, let's just talk about a project that I, I looked at on your website yesterday, which is called A Shower for 2017. Yep. What's, what's the aspiration, what's the hope behind that project? Uh, again, that is a simple one. I mean, I think every, every family, not just Aboriginal family, every family should have the ability every day to wash them and themselves and their kids. Um, now, most people in this room, I won't do what I do in talks, and I ask people to put their hand up if they, if they could have had a shower this morning. Not, did you have one? I'm, too, I'm very sensitive. You know, could you have had a shower? Now, you know, most people here, I would guess, would say yes, um, unless you've had a hot water system blow up. or And if you can't, it's probably an unusual event. Um, in Australia, 35% of the 7,500 houses we've looked at in the last 10 years, 35% have a working shower when we get there. 65% have a shower that simply you could not wash in. Any of you could not wash in. So why have we got developing world levels of infectious disease? Eyes, skin, ears, because you can't have a wash. Um, now, I can't have a wash. I've been in these houses. I know I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't do it even with a screwdriver. I couldn't get it to work. So, you know, our aspiration, dead simple. All people in, in, you know, Indigenous communities, but I would hope all communities will have a working shower. Is that unreasonable? Is the test unreasonable? I don't think it is. I think it's something that we should aspire to. How are we going to do it? I think at the minute, the current government policies that we have in place at the minute are the worst I've seen in 30 years. More money is being spent than in Australia's history on remote Indigenous housing, $5.5 billion. And everything we're spotting in terms of what's actually hitting the ground, I think will decline. I, I've predicted that by 2017, we'll have 28% of showers nationally will be functioning for Indigenous people. Now, I think that's a national disgrace. I've said it publicly, and I will continue to say it publicly, because I think it's really important. Um, it's not just about the showering. It's about getting rid of the bugs that do the kids permanent damage. And that's not overstating it, uh, and all our work shows, the medical side of it says this is a key issue. If you can wash kids 0 to 5, their chance in life improves dramatically. 0 to 5. So if you want to get on the grog at 18 or 16, if you want to drive cars fast at 17, if you want to be a hopeless teenager or adult, that's fine. We're talking about kids 0 to 5, and most of us haven't made a big call about our own lives 0 to 5. We tend to be at the mercy of someone else, parents, guardians, mates, grannies, whatever. You know, we don't have too many life-changing decisions, not to five, I don't think. So 
My main job is we need to wash kids not to five, and that's been the target of a work now for 27 years. Incredibly simple, and I've I got to say, we haven't done a great job. So when you're talking to a room like this, which is a room full of professional people, mm. and you say there are many architects here as well, so what can we as members of the public who've got <coughs> any kind of concern or interest in this sort of thing do? What are, what are we supposed to do when you tell us this kind of story? Mm. It's appalling. And I don't want us to leave here feeling powerless about that. No. I want you to tell us what we should do. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a good question. Um, look, it, it's, it's the question. I mean, and I, look, there's a lot of people in this room who I know who have done some extraordinary work, and the work they've done um, in the areas I know will... But that's what changes things. People do good work, and that changes it. There are other people here who have no link to, say, Aboriginal people or to those specific issues of building, but they also have a voice. Everyone in this room has a voice, and that voice is about you know, questioning things, asking questions, finding out fact um, as opposed to myth, mm. and I think that makes a big difference. Just that in itself makes a difference. So people say, well, no, um, this government or that government is, is not really the issue, it's what is actually being delivered. I think that's what's important. Mm. In terms of day-to-day -day action, I think that's much harder. I mean, I don't have a magic wand to say, do this or do that. But I think knowing what... I think certainly separating myth from fact is a key part. Um, you know, that, that building $5.5 billion worth of housing will not necessarily solve the problem. I'm sure of that. Building $5.5 billion worth of good housing that works will solve the problem, no question. Um, so I'm not knocking the money, I'm not knocking the intent of governments, um, that's not our job. Our job is to get things that work. Um, and, you know, architecture students, I'm always amazed that, you know, that they pick up the challenge, I guess. You know, we've got students in a couple of weeks who want to run a course so they can learn how they can do just one thing, you know, just one bit of it they can. Industrial design students want to learn to build a better stove. Um, you know, we get all sorts. We've had law students want to know how they attack the system. I thought, well, you know, it's a good question, but I'm not quite sure how you do that. But, you know, people want to have an input into it, and I think they can, but I think how you do that has to be... Again, I think that's, that needs to be more considered. Now, you, you talked before, and I am going to um, give you the chance to ask Paul questions, because I'm sure that lots, lots of questions will arise from the things that he's said, so I'll, I'll do that um, very soon. But I just wanted to ask you, um, you talked before about what's beautiful is what works. And I was just wondering whether, in the different Aboriginal communities that you've worked in, whether there's been a conversation about aesthetics mm as part of the design of homes, or whether that conversation is regarded as being a luxury that is not part of the equation. Can, can you say something about that? It's a great question. It's a really good question. It's something I get asked all the time. The most asked question people say to me, why, why, has, never an, no, why has an architect never asked Aboriginal people what they want? Mm. And I'd always, I always laugh, and i say, well, you know, I spent 20 odd years asking. Um, it's, and if it was only that simple, if only the answer was so simple, but, um, okay, I, if, if you go into a community, and um, I remember meeting a young architect, and he's a really sincere guy, he'd worked for three months in a, a northwest Australian community at no cost, he decided he left Perth and he was going up there to help um, a small community, and he was going to go and do it, no matter what, and he camped outside a house, 
and he had spent three months on the design of one family's house. He was going to design them a better house. And he picked his family, or they picked him, I'm not sure which, and he had worked his backside off for about two and a bit months when I met him on this house. And it's good. I got no problem with that at all. And the this same community had run Health Habitat um, to see if they could run a housing for health, improve, fix their houses. They'd rung me and said, will you come up and talk about what the project involves? And I said, no, I won't. I won't come and talk to you. And they said, well, that's, that's not very good. And I said, no, because it's a hell of a long way to go to talk. What, what I will do is if you can get $5,000 in the bank, once you've got $5,000, I don't care how you get it, and Aboriginal people are pretty good at grabbing money, finding money, um, then we'd have a plumber and an electrician there when I arrive and two families ready to go that we can access their houses. And while I'm there, we'll fix two houses, then you'll see what we do, and when we leave, two people will have better house, two families will have better houses rather than just talking. He said, okay, fair enough. So a month on, phone call, we've got the $5,000, we've got a plumber, electrician, and two families. We're on. So I'd flown up. This guy was given the job because I think they felt very sorry for him, this Aboriginal community. They weren't quite sure what he was doing. They sent him to pick me from the airstrip to take me back. And as he's driving me back, he said, oh, it's great you're here. And I said, thank you. Said, thank you. It's really nice. He said, yeah, I, I want you to look at some drawings. And we, I'd literally just got in the car. And he, I said, oh, sure. You know, and he passed me this bundle and I opened it up. And I could not see a thing, like it was a white sheet of paper. My eyes aren't very good anyway, but I'm like this. And I said, look, I'm... and finally I saw these faintest of faint lines. And I said, right. I said, look, I'm, I'm struggling with this a bit, but, you know. And he looked at me and he, he was crestfallen. He said, oh, you know, if anyone, I thought you would understand what I'm doing. And I said, okay, um, but, you know, what is it? And he, it wasn't the right thing. And he said, oh, oh. You know, the car. Thank God we got there. We got out of the car. Anyway, we, we went to the first family's house and off we went. And we had, by this stage, the Shire president. We had the building inspectors. The, the community had got this entourage of people to come and look at this, what we were going to do. And about 12 local Aboriginal mob, and we, we descended on this poor family. I'll always remember the look on the guy, his wife, and his two kids as this posse of people going towards <laughs> him with tools and mutes, and, and he felt like, oh. And anyway, OK, that's fine. We'll go in. And the family sat on the edge, and off we went. And we walked into the lounge room, and there was two inches of raw shit throughout the entire lounge room, just effluent, just sort of bubbling away. And um, so, the plumber, I remember saying to the plumber, well, you've got your job. <laughs> Find where it's coming from and start to get onto it. And, you know, the plumber said, sure, I'm off. Took a couple of the young Aboriginal guys and, you know, off he went. And the Shire, um, Bill, whatever he, what he called him, health inspector, that's right, he's at my shoulder. And the Shire health inspector saying, you see, they don't know how to use toilets. I said, right, OK, that's great. Let's move on. And there's wires hanging out of the wall. The electrician immediately saw that. There'd been no hot water for a couple of months. So the electrician grabbed his guy and off they went. So meanwhile, two other Aboriginal blokes, we had a broom and a mop, start getting the royal effluent out of the house. So, which would have been a pointless task, except by now the plumber had found at least what was leaking and fixed that. And he said, but the toilet's not blocked. The toilet's fine. And the building 
council guy next to me said, ah, they put stuff down the toilet and that blocks the septic tank. And I said, oh, yeah, probably true. So the plumber's now tracking it back to the septic tank. There is a point to this story. <laughs> we get to the septic tank and that by now the electrician's restored the hot water system, he's fixed the element, we've got some lights working for the first time in a couple of months. Floor's just about mopped and cleaned and now the disinfectant's on and they're going through it again. And the family's now involved doing the same stuff, so that's great. We've now opened the septic tank and surprise, surprise, there's nothing blocking the septic tank. And for the first time, the building inspector or the, the council building guy didn't say a word and he just looked at me. And I said, you know, are you going to say something? <laughs> I realised why in a minute, and the, the plumber said, well, it's got to be from the septic tank downstream. So with that, the guys had already started dismantling the fence of this house, so a backhoe could be driven in to dig down to find what happened to the pipe out of the septic tank. So this now looked more like a mining site than a house construction. You know, we were all over it. Um, and as the sun was just about to set, the, the guys on the backhoe digging down on the shovels finally found it about four foot down was was in fact the pipe coming out of the septic tank with a brick shoved in it. The council inspector was the person involved in connecting all septic tanks to a common effluent pipe to take them out to the waste treatment plant. His job was to supervise construction. And I turned to him and he said, don't say a word. He said, that's my responsibility. I'm the one who got it wrong here. He became one of our best allies in the northwest of Western Australia. The key bit of the story was yes, the, architect. the family that we happened to pick by no reason was happened to be the family that the student, this recent graduate had spent two and a half months working for. And he came out completely shocked and he said in two and a half months they have never once said to me that their house had anything wrong with it, raw effluent in it, that there was a problem with the lights, problem with the hot water, nothing. And he said, there I was asking them, what was their ideal house? And I said, well, their ideal house probably would have been one without three inches of raw shit in the lounge room. <laughs> and by increment, and the answer to the question, I think, is you simply cannot talk to people about what their dream is yeah. if they're living in those conditions. The counterpoint is, when we've been in places where we worked for three, four, five years in the early days of the work in Central Australia, we found there was about a two-year lag if you can get a house working, it takes about two years to then engage people in a discussion which goes beyond just it works. Mm. Yeah. It's so remarkable that your house works and it continues to work. People finally then say, OK, given that, we now want three kitchens. Why three kitchens? Because one is for old people who want to cook a whole kangaroo on the ground <laughs> in coals without dust coming blowing over it. They want water nearby and a, a high shelf to stop the dogs snuffling. So you can put the shelf on the edge of the house and you can do all of that. And you can have a very sophisticated outside kitchen in the yard of a house. Second generation, my age and younger, they'll have a drum oven under the eaves of the house, under the veranda, where they can cook a big amount of milk, because there's 20 people sharing the three-bedroom house. So they want to cook things this big, not like us. For two of us, we want something that big. <laughs> they want it this big. So they need a big drum oven, a barbecue plate. In the house, there's 19, 18-year-olds who've got a ghetto blaster on, playing whatever's the current thing in New York. They're cooking three-minute noodles so they can watch a video. Yeah. Yeah. And all three generations are in that house. Which is the right way to cook? 
blood if I know. I mean, they're all the right way to cook. That's where you get mm -hmm. Aboriginal mob then starting to take a real input in design. When they can treat you seriously, that you might actually be able to deliver that product. They will then talk to you about the way that they think they ought to live or could live or maybe want to live. Like they want to live outside the house, on the edges of the house. Not they don't want an inside, but they actually want to use that yard, we call it a living room. The yard around the house we renamed living room in the early days. Um, housing departments would not fund, wouldn't put money into anything but the four walls. So the way around that was to say, okay, these are the four walls, we'll call them, and that's living room. We used to put it on the drawings and they'd say, but that's not a living room, that's an outside yard. And that's landscaping. We say, no, 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 it's a living room. Mm. And the wall, and they say, but they're not walls, they're fences. No, they're walls with holes in them. <laughs> you might call it a fence, we call it a wall. And we had this, you know, great philosophical debate. But that's the way you finally engage people. But unless you've got that base, I don't think any group, not, not just Aboriginal people, people in Nepal, people mm. in New York, they take one, take one look at us and say, you're just like everyone that's come before. You'll be concerned, you'll tick a few things, you'll do it, and you'll, we'll never see you again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very fair way they should treat us. I think that's exactly how they should treat us, until we can deliver something. So, long answer. Mm -hmm. Great question. answer. Great answer, like all of your answers. Um, now it's your turn. So, you know, this is an exceptional opportunity. Paul is always not here. Um, so take, take the opportunity while you can. Um, there is a microphone, so we'll, we'll use the microphone so that people at the back of the room can hear. And if, I'm sorry, um, if we could just come to the gentleman in the front row first and then we'll come to you. Um, John? Yeah, should be on. I'd like to ask why the, why the government policies now are so appalling. So there was mm -hmm. 30 years. Why is that? Did you hear that at the back, actually? Could you hear that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that no, it's on, actually. It's on, um, the, it's on the bottom. Um, the gentleman was asking why the, um, why the government policies are so appalling. The, the worst in 30 years. The worst in 30 years, yes, sorry. Look, I've spent, I don't know how many sleepless nights trying to answer that question. Um, and after, you know, two years of... For a year and a half, I think I excused what was happening and, um, and finally had to make a much tougher stand on it. You know. And I, I honestly, I just, I simply don't know. I was on, you know, the previous Prime Minister when Kevin Rudd had a, a panel a commission to actually oversee how that money was put into place around Australia. I sat on that commission of four people thinking that that was a good thing to, to lend a hand to because absolutely no grumble about spending money and getting good things there. I resigned in because I thought it was an absolute and complete bloody waste of time. Um, I, I got completely sick and tired of um, being told that there were complex issues that I didn't understand and that you know, we were going to roll out and yet another thing that I think many people in this room will have seen rolled out, you know, the, these two characters in particular, probably, you know, 30 years ago, and know that they're not going to work. And an attitude that won't work, uh, that we are here to save them. Well, sorry, it doesn't work like that. You know, I just cannot see any project being successful if that's the underpinning sort of ethos. With enough money, I will come and save you because effectively you are hopeless. We're going to come and help you. Well, what has made it worse? I think frust I think frustration is a bit of it. I think that political lead. I don't think are evil or bad. I, I think that's too simplistic. But I think frustration, and people want to see this thing solved. The number of people who say to me, you know, why can't you bloody solve it? And you sort of go, well, 
okay, but what is the solution? And that's the problem. It's, it's what does the solution look like? You know, if in New South Wales, by spending $7,500 a house for 10 years on about 2,500 houses, which we've done, tiny amounts of money, 75% of the staff for local Aboriginal people, we had a 40% reduction in hospital admissions in the communities we worked in compared to where we didn't. You know, published, checked, medically stamped, not by us, done by independent people to, to show that. Now, to me, that is success. Mm. Yeah? It's not beautiful houses, it's not great houses, it's not houses that we maybe all want to live in, but it's the beginning of success. The next bit is you could follow that up and then go back again, and now let's say we've got to here, let's keep going. If, you know, that to me is what we need to be clear on what success looks like. If it's about being able to say, which the current policy is, we have built 4,200 houses in Australia, then I'm afraid I'm not interested. That is simply not going to work. That's not the issue. It's not how many you build, it's do they work? And other families living in them working on Have you got local people involved in not just how they work, but how they're going to be maintained for the next 40 years? These are the hard questions, but I'm afraid if we've got such a, you know, to be honest, a dumb political agenda, then I'm afraid we're going to get dumb answers, and that's exactly what we're getting. So. Definitely not with that, Rowan. We'll, we'll come to you, Libby, after that. Oh, sorry. Um, in terms of... Um, you mentioned, obviously, the, one of the problems is there's a lot of defective work. Where is the problem specifically? Is, is it poorly documented, designed? Is it poor supervision? What, 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 in, in terms of the... From design to construction. Look, if you're spending five and a half, five and a half billion dollars, I mean, surely there's, there should be some sort of process and... I'd, I'd start... I mean, I think as a matter of urgency, we'd start with the end point, and that is, first of all, I'd knock out faulty construction. I think you have to do that today, like we could do that tomorrow. There should be nothing that isn't according to um, documents and at least build what it is you say you were going to build for the cost you say you were going to build it. I mean, that's a starting point that you know, most architects do on every job they do. Second, then, you'd go back one step and then check that what's been designed is actually fit for purpose or it actually has a chance of surviving in the most rudimentary terms. I start, I'd start with function that the shower, the toilet, the drainage will work for you know, 20, 30 years. And only then, I think, would I get back to um, design issues. You know, I mean, issues of how families want to live, how um, communities want to live. I mean, there's, and I, I say that because I think it is so, so critical. I just don't think we have the luxury of starting at the end of design. And the faults we're finding, a lot of them are just purely construction faults. Yeah. So I'd have to start there. That's not what a lot of people want to hear, but I think that's where we'd start. And we could do that pretty quickly, and then we could get on to how do families want to live. And if we're using 75% of the teams doing the work to be um, local people, that's going to start the dialogue. My argument simply on this big program was, first of all, fix the existing houses using a big team of local people. Out of that, you're going to learn what, what new houses need to be built and how they should be built. And you're going to have people along for the whole ride. Mm. Then they're going to be your maintenance staff for the next 20 years. Mm. And that's the way I think it could flow on. Question in the second row. Take the mark. Take the mark. It's just coming in. Oh, sorry, yeah. um, I've just been in Mali a couple of months ago. And uh, I was living in a, a very small village, quite an isolated village. And it was just how you described the living room outside. 
and it worked brilliantly. There were um, some several. There were probably four pit toilets. There were about 25 people living in that area. There were little um, rooms that people slept in. All the cooking was outside. Um, there was a, a, a well and um, fruit trees in the middle. It was most delightful. There were areas where you could sit if it was raining. But not, doesn't, not that it rains very often, but. Um, I thought, why are Aboriginal communities not um, the houses being built like this? Because um, on trips to Aboriginal communities that I've done, I thought it was really inappropriate, the sort of housing that seemed to be built, like in Elko Island, where I went last mm. year. It seemed really inappropriate that they'd have, you know, kitchen, bathroom, three bedrooms, and then there are people living in tents out in the you know, beyond, because there weren't enough rooms for everybody. And I, I just found a revelation when you said that um, the funding wasn't forthcoming unless they had a standard sort of house and not the living room outside. Mm. Uh, I agree. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, look, I think, yeah, I mean, I agree, but the, the, the slight difference is we're not, I mean, it's difficult to confuse, say, Mali with... And I, don't, I think there should be clear distinction. It's also like saying all Aboriginal people is a huge mistake because, you know, there's people who live in urban Sydney who want to have a, a terrace house. You know? um, and I've done work on a you know, house in urban Sydney for a CEO of an Aboriginal organisation and she wanted to go through the specification list of what door handles and knobs and... And of course, why not? You know, a, a, well, I was talking about remote communities. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. But I just think that we treat each group, and what you're saying, I think, is valid. You know, that if people want to live that way, then I think they should be able to live that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can I have, uh, my voice tends to carry. Can you hear me? Yeah. I, I've got uh, two questions. It's really? <laughs> and uh, and that I'm determined to get involved in that question with a particular emphasis on 
density and what density means in the context of Aboriginal uh, living because it was only when I started to do a little bit of research to prepare for tonight did I understand that in, in many Aboriginal communities it is very desirable to live in a density that we do not aspire to. So could you just answer Jean's question in relation to density issues? Yeah, sure. Look, I, um I understand exactly what you're saying. And, for example, the current Federal Minister said we should... The way that we would reduce overcrowding yeah. is we double the number of houses. OK? So, so if we had 200, 200 yeah. people... Um, 200 people in 10 houses, 20 people per house, yeah. we double it, we get it to 10. Yeah. That's been tried. It was tried 15 years ago. And what tends to happen is you build 10 new ones and all the people go to the 10 new ones. Yeah. Why is that? Not, yeah. not Exactly. Yeah. So we go to get a working shower, a working toilet. No. But there's something else, isn't there, culturally, well, yeah, about cu density? Men make little clusters. Arab villages are spent time in the Middle East are not comparing, but mm. there are clusters of houses. And with central courtyards and outside facilities, no block of silence, surely. Oh, I mean, if 74 people <laughs> here, you know, it's, a, well, it's but, so oh, bleeding obvious. Uh, <laughs> I used to say that, but I actually now think it is. It is equivalent to rocket science. I tell you why, because because I think if we think it's so simple, it, it almost, like if I say to someone I'm gonna design a high rise building, a, a, a kilometer high tower, they say to me, well, have you got any experience to do that? Yeah. And I say, no. And they say, well, surely you're gonna make a mistake. Yeah. And then they will equally though say, to design a house for 15 people, that's not that complex. You say, well, actually, it might be that complex if you take in all these other factors. But to answer your question, yeah. I mean, in parts of Australia, not all, but in parts of Australia, when someone dies in a family, for example, all the people move out of the house. That's a requirement. And the people next to them and next to them and next to them might move out of the house mm. too as a, as a custom. Yeah. They will then move somewhere else in that community. Now, no matter how many houses you have, you're probably going to increase the density. You Which you do. It. We now know it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, other people can also find out this but information. And you started off your whole talk about you come from a part Greek family and you understood, and my family is, has understood, uh, we spoke five languages at home. So, you know, it, the question of the other was not a mystery to us. There are so many people in Australia who understand that, as you said yourself. So is it not possible to say to people, this is a, another culture with another way of living that greets death in another way and responds to death in another way, and therefore the housing has to match the cultural practices of these communities? Yes, it's, and everyone will nod with you and, no. so, and, and say they'll say, yes, you're absolutely right. right. And then my next question is, OK, so what do you do in the house? And everyone says, well... Uh, 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 but let's just say, we take that mm. death example, there are simple ways that we've reacted to that. Mm. For example, you know, the, and these are often not that sexy, but the septic tank or the waste mm. disposal system, if it's normally sized for six people, mm. probably ought to be sized for 18 people mm. because that load, when it occurs, mm. the, the septic tank failing will mean raw effluent on the ground, mm. kids will be playing in it, no. gut infection no. goes through yeah. the roof. So if you change that one thing, just the septic 
can. Mm. Then you can have big impact. If, for example, you say a normal hot water system for mum, dad and the kids mm. in Sydney is this big, then maybe you need one. Yeah. But maybe you also need a second one that yeah. if the first one fails, fails yeah. there's a backup. Yeah. And maybe the second one's stoked by bits of timber. Maybe it's a, a very alternative yeah. one, but it's there. Maybe you need two toilets, a pit toilet in the yard, yeah. a dry toilet for okay. guests and maybe another one in the house. Yeah. Now, maybe you start to think about areas of just cover so that you can put your swag for awesome. a month, for a month, awesome. and even a fence that can be a great structure if it's strong enough that you can actually lean stuff against. Mm. Again, for another month when the family has to come and camp with you because they've left their house awesome. and then they go back to their house awesome. after. But you mm. can start to chart all these things you can do as a strategy that will allow that behaviour. Now, does that mean you don't build more houses? Well, no, not necessarily. But it means in the interim you can do a whole lot of things to allow this thing to be sold. And what you're saying is, right, if people not just say... You hear it all the time. We should be designing culturally appropriate houses. And I always ask, give me four things you think are culturally appropriate. Yeah. And you, the answers you get usually are Aboriginal people all like living together. Not true. Aboriginal people all get on so they, they, they don't want fences. <laughs> not, not true. Um, and after about two or three, people are completely <coughs> stumped. They ought to have curves in them. Used to be a good one. I think that one's gone now. <laughs> and they should be built out of local materials. And the, maybe the last is they should be built by the people themselves. And you go, OK, if we did all of that, would they be culturally appropriate? Absolutely. And you think, well, no, not necessarily at all. And it comes back to trying to dispel myth yeah. from, from actual fact. Yeah. OK, more questions. Question at the back of the room. Hi, Jane. Um, I'll, I'll go to complain uh, the director of Jack Thompson Foundation and the principal. $27 billion Australia spent in 10 years on the Indigenous debate. And there's 7,500 communities in Australia. <coughs> it is the same situation that I have to like for this November, Western Australia. It's the same situation in every community. That's what we call and I go to. Ten years. Why, Paul, do you think that someone like yourself, who is the godfather of a book called House of Health, why do you think that the government has not funded, and in fact, in your case, was actually full funding and health after that, when organisations like your own do such a work? I mean, we, we had our money stopped in the middle of last year after 12 years of consistent funding. And that was simply, I mean, the, the, I think the reason was very simple. We were starting to find too many skeletons in the closets that were being built. And because the tests we do are the same, every house we go to, we test it thoroughly. And it's not a, I think it's a nice house. It's 250 tests done on how it functions. I think it was pretty clear that we were telling stories that no one wanted to hear, and that, that was the clear reason we got stopped. Um, I mean, that, that's one. I also think Australia is an incredibly hard place. We're working now in Nepal. We, we've taken our resources and some of our minimal resources, and we're working in Nepal. And, and interestingly, the program that we ran in Australia has been picked up in New York City, mm. in, in urban New York, in Brooklyn. And I find, I mean, it's so much easier, really, to get the ideas accepted there than it has been in Australia. In fact, it's a very tough place to work. And, and John, you, you know, in, in those stats which you 
right. I mean, in Australia, there's probably about 150,000, and we could debate this, Aboriginal and Islander people who are doing it tough. Not all Aboriginal and Islander people in Australia, you know, are, are in trouble. They've got jobs and families and they've got, you know, they're going fine, thanks very much. They don't need a hand, as, as it should be. Um, so, you know, the amount of money that goes into what is essentially about a, a one and a half MCG crowd um, and why we can't knock it in, you know, I think five years, a lot of the, the most basic issues we should be able to solve. And I think that's a big, it's another myth that the problem is too hard to solve. Mm. And I think that is simply not it's right. It's too simple to solve we, in we some can, ways. We can make a dent on bits of it. Not all of it, but bits of it. And the people who are going to make the biggest dent are going to be Aboriginal people and Islander people who live in the places where they live. And, you know, that's, that's a key. Which, um, is there another question from the audience? Quick one. Who uh, Now, after the project stopped, or, or yeah, okay, in the in the whole team, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it's a. I'm happy to give you a long and technical answer, and I'm more than happy. A bit like uh, Jean, the budget stuff I love to talk about. I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's actually where the truth lies. Um, yeah, we work on. There's about uh, 20 managers around Australia, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. They work on a project basis. They take on projects. They then assemble local teams. Health Habitat is the funnel for the money more than, you know, probably 90% of all the money doesn't come to us. It actually goes directly to the project from all sorts of sources. But... All sorts of sources. Yeah, I mean, state governments, mm. federal government, health department, housing department, private money, mm. Aboriginal money. Communities often insert their own dollars into it. Um, so the money comes from all sorts of places. Our main thing is we do it under a licence, a strict control over exactly what is done and how it's done, and that we make sure we get the results. And that's, that's our non-negotiable. And when people say, you know, you go and consult with Aboriginal people, to a point, in the Housing for Health stuff, we don't. We take them a known product and we say to them, this is what we will do. And we go through it in great detail. But if you don't want to do it, We'll shake your hand and we'll walk away. There's no hard feeling, but we are not going to change the... If someone says, well, actually, we're not that interested in showers, <laughs> well, sorry, we, we are. Mm. And, and if you're not, that's fine. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying you don't want this program. We'll shake hands and we'll walk away. And that's, that's a key. Paul, I am absolutely determined to finish on a high note of some kind. And it just so happens that as I was driving in today, uh, I'm sure some of you must have heard this report on um, the lunchtime news program about a fantastic program at the University of New South Wales to train Indigenous architects. Mm. Can you just um, recap what you said to me upstairs about that particular project? Because I think it's kind of an interesting sort of model or metaphor for persistence perhaps yeah yeah look up the, the um, getting students in to train as architects uh, you know indigenous students I think is great and of course we should be doing it and supporting it um, it was um, Hal Wooten who was the boss of the law school for a number of years I don't know how long exactly at New South Wales University and this is a while back and but Hal told the story that when he tried to establish a you know, a pre-law it was called, to get Indigenous people in a position where they could start and complete a law course. 
um, uh, he was he'd heard that architecture was trying to do this and he'd well and truly retired and he said look it's a long slog he, he made the point he says it's going to be really hard to do um, and I said why is that and he said well in law I think it was about five years they'd run the program of trying to get people and they'd had staff allocated to get people to come and do this law course and and after five years he'd had precious little success like really nothing had happened and a staff meeting of his staff basically assembled and said to, um, to Hal, this has been, um, you know, Hal, this is a great adventure you've been on, but it's a disaster and we've got to look realistically at the facts and, you know, we haven't got a student up and it's about bloody time we shut it down. And Hal looked at everyone in the room and said, well, he said, ladies and gentlemen, he said, this is not a democracy. He said, I'm in charge. And he said, we will keep going until it works. <laughs> and it took him till about, I think it's about year six or seven, seven, eight, before it bit, and by year 10, it was a well and truly established way that people could get into the law. And I think the architecture will be the same. And I guess it's like many of the things we've talked about tonight. I don't think there's a quick flash, you know, two-year political cycle answer. It's, it's the slog of often just a few people who keep going to, um, you know, to push it. And I guess the, the high note, I mean, <laughs> that, that I think is a high note, I mean, things like... 40% um, reduction in hospital admissions from a known body of work, which we could assume would also occur in all the states that haven't been medically tested. Mm. The fact that the work, um, and I will you know, boast here, I mean, we did win a World Habitat Award from UN Habitat last year out of 82 countries and 250 competitors. And I say that not so much about the work. It just means that the work was on an international stage. It's been tested and looked at. Mm. I don't think it's us saying we're not getting a, you know, the work should be accepted more by government. I think it does achieve things. I think in Nepal, we're able to now have a, after two and a bit years, I guess, we had pretty much a full Nepalese team. Um, and that's one of Sandra has, who again, commenced the project. She leads all projects. I just follow. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the great successes we talk about there is that we're not just building toilets and waste systems. That's what it is. It's really unglamorous. For a village that doesn't have any toilets, it's it's a pretty important thing. Mm. Not only could we cook off the waste so they get a free source of cooking fuel, but, but a key bit we talk about so often is what we're building is not just the thing. It's not just the materials and the way they're put together. That's important. But what we're also building is a local community mm. and a team of people who now have real jobs, doing real work that they didn't have before. The money circulates with them. They then improve their own lives, their own kids, their houses, all the rest. That first village we worked in was completed. That village is now training two more villages. They're now the trainers, you know, the people who a few years ago had no job are now training people to do the same work and we hope that'll spread to four. Now, if someone came to us a few years ago and said, we've got $20 million to do 10,000 toilets, I can think of no better way to kill all of that than to take the money. That would have killed it in its tracks. Sometimes it has to be this almost viral approach mm. to start with one family, one NGO, a local Nepalese mob who said, we can do this and slowly build that base. And as you build it, it doesn't mean you stay small forever. Uh, Health Habitat started with 12 houses and in the last X years, seven and a half thousand houses nationally. I don't think you have to stay small. Small isn't necessarily good, but I think starting small is absolutely essential. And I think the, the lesson is that that's the thing we should be pushing, um, to do things well, small, and then spread them as they get better and better and keep growing, and, as opposed to this 
grand belief that we can put a massive amount of money and everything will change within a political cycle and I don't think it will. Anyway, aid money hasn't done it overseas and my good friend Mr Chesterman there, the boss of Emergency Architects Australia is, is doing extraordinary work with a, a young, often a young team, much younger than he and I, uh, who are all over the place um, in countries around our region, um, you know, doing very similar work to what Health Habitat's doing. So there's, there are so many positive stories, and they do it in an incremental, small, it's struggling, it's always a struggle, it's never quite perfect, we've never got enough money, it's never quite going where we think it might. But then something good will happen and then something good and it's people like, you know, David and um, Sandra and there's these guys at the front who've done more amazing work than I can think of. John up the back. I mean, there's, there's people all over the place here who are doing... I think there's a lot of room for optimism. Well, I think... Of course, yes. and I hope, uh, just in finishing, that um, you can now see why I wanted to have Paul with us here tonight. Please join me in thanking Paul Valeros. Thank you. website which is actually very good and which tells you quite a lot about the work that's going on in Nepal and if I'm not wrong you can donate can't you towards the Nepalese toilet scheme which is really worthwhile I've done it and also um, I've never for some reason remembered to say thank you to Aaron who's in charge of this program and the sound and all the technical bits and the logistics and is somewhere upstairs so please thank you very much Aaron <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.